This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's ELAB Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Our guest in this interview is Lorenzo Kristov, a principal of market and infrastructure policy with the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO. Lorenzo is actually our first returning guest to the Energy Transition Show. Considering the great feedback we got on his appearance in Episode 10, I'm sure our listeners will be excited to hear what he has to say now. So, Lorenzo, welcome back to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm glad to be here. In your previous appearance on the show, we got pretty deep into the weeds on grid architecture and your thoughts about where the grid might be going in the future. Rather than revisit all that today, I just thought I'd ask if, in the 10 months since we did that interview, if you have any fresh indications of how the architecture of the future might be evolving or where the interest is around some of your paradigmatic ideas if it started to coalesce. Well, I think one of the themes that I recall emphasizing towards the end of our discussion was the increasing roles of cities and counties, local jurisdictions, in wanting to customize their mix of electric supply resources and to take more control of their energy future. I think that is generally moving forward as more and more cities and counties, at least as I'm seeing in California, are becoming community choice aggregators. Many of them are waiting in the wings in the process of becoming community choice aggregators. And in the course of doing that, it's not simply a matter of getting cleaner energy off the wholesale market at a lower price. They're really thinking about local energy programs 
how they can build resources, community solar, community batteries, how they can take control of their energy efficiency, money in, invested in local programs, the local economic development aspects of energy. So I think all of that is continuing to move forward, and we have now six in California, whereas last time we spoke, there were three. I didn't realize there were six now. Yeah. What are the newest ones? Well, one is San Francisco, okay. City County of San Francisco. Another one is San Mateo County. And the third one is also down on the peninsula area, and I forget what its name is, which is now an active CCA. But in addition, Marin Clean Energy has expanded its territory, integrating Walnut Creek and Lafayette and unincorporated Napa County, and maybe some other areas. It's gotten considerably bigger. Yeah, and Marin Clean Energy, as I recall, has actually finally started investing some real money into building local community solar farms. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And Sonoma Clean Power, I think, has had Mendocino County join. Hmm. Okay, well, that's certainly a positive move in the right direction in terms of what we were talking about. What about the whole concept of kind of the grid architecture stuff we discussed last time of the different ways of structuring visibility between the TSO and the DSO and so on? Has there been any new evolution of thought amongst your peers as to the right direction to go? Well, at a formal level, grid architecture is moving forward under some substantial Department of Energy uh, funding for the Grid Modernization Lab Consortium, or GMLC, which had some kickoff workshops earlier this year. I attended one of them in California in June, where they unveiled this program. And DOE essentially wanted to create a grid modernization effort largely through the national laboratories. But as was explained to me, unlike the usual approach of putting out opportunities for funding and having the labs respond, they actually put out a request for the labs to collaborate and give them one response, which would be an entire program of different projects. And so the Grid Modernization Lab Consortium, and listeners can Google GMLC space DOE, and it'll bring up a page that shows you all the projects that were funded and an overview of the program including their multi-year program plan, which lays out the entire thing. Grid architecture is a central piece of that, but grid modernization containing many more dimensions having to do with telecommunications and technologies and, and many more things. So it's a very interesting program, and grid architecture being one of the central elements of it will get quite a boost. More about the substance of grid architecture and the folks that I've been talking to is as we realize the complexity of having lots more distributed resources on the grid, this concept of layered decomposition or laminar decomposition is gaining some traction. I have to qualify that by recognizing that it's a very different paradigm to how the electric system operates today. At the ISO, where we have to say, plan infrastructure, or where we're thinking about resource adequacy capacity based on a system peak load and a planning reserve margin, or even on our spot markets when we're procuring reserves. All of those are measured against gross load. Hmm. That's all the way down to the customer level. So the ISO is responsible, essentially, for what happens if clouds come over and take out some solar power on the rooftops of residences and we lose... 50 megawatts in an area because the solar is now covered up. 
And as that progresses, that becomes operationally a lot more complex for a system operator. And if we have to have backup capacity to duplicate all the distributed resources, there's the potential for tremendous over-investment or underutilized capacity. Yeah. So is there a way to change that structure so it operates more in layers mm -hmm. rather than as the ISO at the top looking all the way down to the bottom and adding up megawatts right. in that way? And so from grid architecture, we get this idea of laminar decomposition or layer decomposition which would be a paradigm whereby the ISO is now looking at meeting net load at each transmission distribution interface rather than all the way down to gross load. Mm. And then a distribution system operator below the transmission distribution interface, it's looking at some kind of net load on its local system where it may be net of microgrid systems. Right. So a campus or a subdivision or an industrial park, which functions as a microgrid or military base, for example, or a port where they have a lot of energy use and they could install resources. They could become a self-contained energy system as a microgrid, they could have island capability, in the future might be able to say, I'm going to opt out of your reliability paradigm, system operator, and don't count my load. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to be responsible for resourcing my own needs, for operating my own system, I will have compliance standards with you so that I'm never exporting problems onto the system. Right. And at the same time, if I'm short of supply and I can't buy it from you and you don't have enough, I'll manage that myself. I'll reduce my demand and manage it. So you start to layer the responsibility where now the microgrid is responsible for its own system and its interface with the distribution grid. The distribution operator at one level up is managing the distribution area that includes the microgrid but it doesn't need to see inside the microgrid. It right. just needs to manage to that interface. And then it's got another interface in the upward direction to the ISO. The ISO sees what it needs to manage to at those interfaces, but doesn't need to see what's actually going on in that lower down level. Mm -hmm. Now that really does entail a very different way of thinking about roles and responsibilities as to where it goes, as to reliability and how it's managed and who's accountable and so on. It's not a, a trivial exercise at all, but grid architecture suggests that there's a lot of benefit in going in that direction for system resilience and reliability, cybersecurity types of reasons, you know, and you can't take out a big portion of the system and have a sweeping outage because all of these entities now are capable of islanding and operating and maintaining reliability. So there's a lot more interest in that now than uh, when we spoke a year ago. Wow, that's really an amazing lot of evolution for 10 months. Well, as I say, it's entering the conversation more. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a mass exodus to go there right. tomorrow. <laughs> It'll take a while because yeah. it's different. But at yeah. least people are recognizing the value and talking about it. Right. Very, very cool. So your domain at Kaiso concerns the top-level wholesale market, the ISO. But I know that you are personally very interested in efforts to transition to renewable energy and build resistance at the local level, or even the hyper-local level, like at the neighborhood level. But these are really very different domains. So are there things that a high-level organization like an ISO or an RTO can do to support transition at the local level? 
Yeah, I think what makes most sense to talk about is at the level of the municipality where they could do community choice aggregation and choose their own resources. Anything below that level could happen within the context of a municipal utility or a CCA. But I think at the level that the ISO has visibility to, the community choice aggregator is simply another load-serving entity. It has the same responsibility as the utilities do to meet the load of their customers. The one difference today being that the utility is still the provider of last resort, that customers can opt out of a CCA and go back to utility service, which has some complications to it. It's not trivial, but it it is one important distinction. Unlike a municipal utility, where in their footprint, they're the responsible entities. There is nobody else to go back to. They're Mm -hmm. your utility. And in some places, this paradigm has changed, where the provider of last resort responsibility has been more of a market-type function rather than kept with the utility. But that aside, the one way that the ISO, I think, in general, helps to promote distributed resources is by creating market participation models that enable the aggregation of resources too small to be in our market individually, but as an aggregation, they could meet the half a megawatt threshold to be ISO market participating. Uh We have one model that FERC approved in the past year. We filed it, I think, in March or April, and it was approved last summer, which is called DER Provider, or DERP, cute name. And basically, the idea is that the DERP, the provider, is actually the entity, the company, say, and the DER aggregation is the resource. So the provider signs an agreement with the ISO to be a DER provider, and then it creates resources, which are aggregations of small distributed resources. They could be behind a customer meter, or they could be on the utility side of the grid. To be integrated into one aggregate resource, they don't have to be the same thing. Mm. You could have a mix of different resources. The only restriction we have on it is that it can't be participating in a net energy metering tariff. Because so then it, it would be sort of double counting. Yeah, that's yeah. it's a double counting, and it's just very confusing. Yeah. And so we excluded that. But other than that, any other resources that are connected at distribution level could be aggregated within some geographic boundaries. You can't go all over the system and north and south and put them together in a single resource. Right. So the DERP creates this aggregate resource. And now as long as it's half megawatt in capacity or more, then it can be participating in the ISO market. And as such, it can provide imbalanced energy. The market already exists for that. Operating reserves, regulation reserve, we have the functionality to be able to do that. So these things, the services in the market exist already. The institutional structure, if you like, for the DERP was the new thing. Yeah, We don't have any operating yet. It was just approved last summer. We've had some parties coming to us about wanting to do it. And I expect by around mid-2017, we'll probably see a couple of them operating in the market. That's very cool. So is that just within the CAISO context, or would that be a nationwide opportunity? Well, now you're getting to the FERC-NOPER Uh, That just came out a couple of weeks ago, where I think FERC cited this development in California in the rulemaking, and I think they're suggesting that they'd like to see other areas do something like that. It's Right now, it lives in our tariff, so it's for the ISO footprint. But there's been a lot of interest. We've had a lot of conversations in different venues about it, and there's a lot of interest in doing that. Developers in particular, because it's costly to develop distributed resources— 
So far, there really aren't opportunities to earn revenues on the distribution system as such, providing services to distribution or substituting for distribution assets. Those are in the works, and the Public Utilities Commission has proceedings that are creating those opportunities. They don't exist today, though. Hmm. So going to the wholesale market is extremely attractive, and that's part of the way that we're enabling DER to expand, is making it simpler, streamlining the metering, for example, We don't need ISO quality metering in order to be a DER aggregation Hmm. under the DERP. You can be what we call a scheduling coordinator metered entity, which means we're dealing with the aggregator. We're metering the aggregate resource, and it's the responsibility of the scheduling coordinator to meter all of its constituent pieces, which is auditable if we need to, if something seems weird or whatever. But it does simplify the metering costs and requirements. Okay. Yeah, I'll link to that, the notice of proposed rule that we were just talking about, because I think it's a really interesting development. In fact, it's the kind of thing we talked about as being a necessary development in, in episode eight, where we talked about storage. I mean, it could be a real watershed opportunity and open a really large new market for distributed energy. Do you think that's true, or am I letting my imagination run wild? Well, nothing wrong with letting your imagination run wild. I do it all the time. But no, I don't think it's far-fetched at all. I think it's definitely in the realm of what FERC has been thinking about. We've been on panels twice now where FERC has convened panels on storage, and we've appeared once was a year ago and once was just last month. So FERC has been interested in bringing storage into the market for Mm -hmm. quite a while. And I see this rulemaking as trying to move further along that line. We already at Kaiso have some capabilities that we've developed that I think are very helpful in this regard, can be improved, but they exist today. And one of them is the way we deal with interconnection of storage devices. Back about three years ago, in our interconnection queue, we have the, the queue opens up every April. You can put an interconnection request and we create a cluster. So I think it was 2014 or maybe 2013 cluster, we had 5,000 megawatts of utility-scale storage devices come into our generator interconnection process. Wow. Well, this is called a generator interconnection process, but this is a storage device. So what do we do with that? Yeah. And there was an earlier order from FERC on small gen interconnection that talked about storage, and it said that ISOs and RTOs should treat these resources like generators that can have negative output sometimes. So we took that idea. Meaning when when the storage device is actually charging. When it's charging, yeah. yeah. So we took the idea and just said, okay, you can be a generator. Right. You can be in the ISO market as a generator. You can go through our interconnection process as a generator. And we recognize that you have some special properties because sometimes you're doing negative output when you're charging. But if you're connecting to the ISO grid, you're a wholesale resource. You're in the market 24-7. And we will study you for interconnection purposes when you're running at your maximum output, just like you, if you were a generator running at your Pmax. Now, for the charging side, we also have to study that in interconnection. But we said, continuing this consistency with how we treat generators. A generator has to appear in the ISO market, even if it doesn't put in a bid, but it's generating energy, that's gonna be settled in the market as uninstructed energy. Mm. So this storage resource, it ought to bid 
in the market to charge. And that way schedule its charging through the ISO market. It doesn't have to, it could be uninstructed and it gets settled as uninstructed energy only, it's buying the energy. It has to agree through its participating generator agreement to be subject to ISO operating instructions, which means if there's any problem on the system, the ISO can instruct it what to do and it's got to shut down or curtail or whatever, which could curtail its charging. So that model enables this storage resource to interconnect to our system like a generator without doing anything in addition to what a generator would have to do. It's very level playing field in that sense. Now, we also did raise the question that if you want to have the complete flexibility to charge anytime you want and not be subject to ISO curtailment instructions, well, then you look like a load. So you've got to go to talk to the utility and go through their load interconnection process so that you can have the right, essentially, to operate as an interconnected load. And for these project developers, for the most part, they said, oh, we don't need that. Hmm. We're, we just need to be able to, sometime in a 24-hour period, get a full charge, and we'll just charge in off hours. And at the exact time that we charge doesn't matter that much. So right. I think using this generator model then really simplifies interconnection, or rather than saying it simplifies it, it allows them to use existing procedures rather than having to create something new for them. Right. But as you say, it's not an easy or a natural fit to the way those things are originally conceptualized. Right? No. I mean, a storage device in this case is sometimes acting like a generator, sometimes acting like a load. That's right. Sometimes it could be in the role of a generator, but it's only providing reactive power. It's not actually supplying energy and all sorts of funny stuff like that. Well, possibly. But I mean, yeah. even, you know, a synchronous condenser can be doing something like that and not providing energy. But I think the important thing is that for a storage device coming on the system, it doesn't need a special interconnection process. Right. It can go through the established procedures. Right. And I, I think another implication of that for the future is that we may see what I call storage-like resources becoming the dominant mode of participating in the grid. And let me explain that. You know, traditionally, we've had this distinction between resources and loads. Right. Resources are these big things out here. Power flows along these lines. Load is at the other end, and it's receiving this commodity, and it consumes it. Well, I think... Part of what DER do is it collapses that distinction. Mm. So every endpoint on the system now could become a storage-like resource. Sometimes it's consuming. Sometimes it's injecting energy. Sometimes it behaves as a load. Sometimes it behaves as a generator. Every house with rooftop solar and a battery and electric vehicle could be a storage-like resource. So we can imagine a future where each endpoint on the distribution system is now this storage-like resource that's mm -hmm. sometimes behaving as a load, sometimes behaving as a generator, and so on. Now, in the ISO market, about two years ago, we created a participation model called NGR, non-generator resource, which we designed specifically for these kinds of devices. Well, specifically for a storage device, sometimes charging, sometimes discharging. But under NGR, 
it looks like a generator that has negative output sometimes, and it can provide imbalanced energy to the market, it can provide reserves, it can provide regulation. So we already have that in the ISO market. And when you look at the FERC NOPER and what it's asking for, I think we've got a couple of the pieces that already fit what FERC is asking for, which are the DERP, the ability to aggregate the NGR model for storage devices to participate in the markets, and then the way we treat storage devices in our interconnection process to be like generators and to go through the normal procedures. Right, right. Okay. Well, that kind of leads naturally into my next question, which was about how CAISO continues to provide leadership. I mean, California has long been at the forefront of energy transition. A lot of other ISOs and RTOs are surely going to start to grapple with some of the issues that CAISO has already been grappling with. So what are some of the recommendations that you might make to your peers in these other wholesale markets and balancing areas? Well, the most important one, I think, is that ISOs and RTOs need to start having conversations with the operators of distribution systems, the utility distribution companies who are served off of their systems. Hmm. There's not enough of that happening yet? I don't think it's happening very much yet. Perhaps somewhat in New York because of the REV process. Right. But in general, we've taken for granted, we at the ISO RTO level, that distribution systems work. And it hasn't been challenged that much because the DER penetration hasn't been that great. But in the future, with larger numbers, there's going to be a need for greater coordination in the following sense, in actually two directions. One is you have DER that are bidding into the ISO market. Now, we model them as if they're at the TD interface substation. Our network model only goes to those substations. So we don't see where on the distribution circuits these DER are located. That means that when we issue a dispatch instruction, we don't know if system conditions on distribution might affect the ability of that resource to respond. Hmm. And we don't have communication channels with the distribution operator to find out anything about current distribution system conditions And we don't convey that dispatch information to the distribution system operator to say, something's going to be happening on your system because this resource is trying to respond to a dispatch. Uh When the numbers are small, may not be a big deal. But if we start having large numbers of DER and they're all bidding into the ISO market and we issue dispatch instructions, that has impacts on distribution. And from what I've learned from our discussions with distribution people is that normal abnormalities are the prevailing case. And what I mean by that is they have a configuration of their system that's called normal configuration, which is what they use for interconnection studies and system studies. But almost any day, there are some abnormal configurations somewhere on their grid. All the time, there's something that's abnormal, (laughs) right? So what that means is that for the resources connected there, if they're in abnormal configuration, they may not be able to be in the ISO market, but they might not know it. Uh Or the ISO might not know it. And they submit a bid. We don't know if it's going to be feasible or not. So this whole question of the feasibility of ISO schedules and dispatches is something where the distribution operator needs to be in the loop. And we need to have a coordination relationship with them and with both of us and the distributed 
resource operator so that we all know how are we being affected by system conditions or how are we affecting the distribution grid. And it brings the distribution operator fully into the collaborative enterprise of operating a reliable system. Right. So another way that that plays out is even for DER that are not participating in the ISO market, they, what we call autonomous behavior, in a sense, they may be behind the meter serving customer needs like managing demand. They might be vehicle charging stations that are not in the market, but they're simply charging vehicles and other kinds of devices. Again, small numbers, no big deal. But when you get into larger numbers, the problem of forecasting the TD interface energy flow becomes more difficult. And mm -hmm. I'm just talking about short-term operational flows, five, 10 minutes, two hours, three hours in advance. Gotcha. What does that look like? If you just have rooftop solar in an area, then with the installed capacity and weather forecasts, you can do a pretty good forecast of what your net load is gonna be at the interface. But once you start adding controllable devices and the factors that affect their behavior, like time of use rates, for example, is going to affect their behavior. We need new ways of actually modeling and forecasting so that at the ISO level, at that interface, we can get good short-term forecasts to put into our market optimization. Again, the distribution utility may be in the best position to do some of that forecasting. This hasn't all been worked out yet, but I think that's one of the problems that we're going to be working on in this coming year. So at CalISO, we have started conversations with the distribution side of the investor-owned utilities, and we've also, under the More Than Smart program, we've had some broader stakeholder conversations about distribution interface TD interface coordination between the distribution company and the resource provider and the ISO. In this year, 2016, we did some initial work to identify, well, what's the communication framework look like today? How would we enhance that to support market participation by DERs and DERP aggregations? And we're going to continue that work in 2017. So my recommendation to other ISOs and RTOs, I think, would be if you're anticipating a growth in DER, especially participation in the wholesale market, get to know the distribution utilities and start some of these coordination conversations with them. Wow, that is a fascinating thing. I, I didn't even, I mean, that didn't even occur to me. So that is very, very cool. So we're retiring a lot of big coal and nuclear plants in the U.S. these days, and we're doing it by exercise of the market. I mean, these plants just can't compete in structured markets in many cases, so their owners are just shutting them down. And on a surface or even a policy level, I don't really have an issue with that. But it also seems to me that since we're not really coordinating these retirements with building new capacity elsewhere, that we might be potentially running a risk of encountering capacity shortfalls in the future, particularly at the ISO-RTO level. So what's your sense of that? Do you think ISOs and RTOs have sufficient visibility to ensure that there will be adequate capacity as these retirements proceed or even accelerate in the coming years? Well, there's a couple of ways that I think about that. Certainly, each ISO and RTO needs to do its own planning in the sense of forecasting resource availability, resource adequacy, and so on. And probably as it starts to see retirements coming, 
it needs to do all the prudent studies that determine whether there's a problem or not. And in instances, it is possible to extend the retirement date through capacity payments and so on. And in some cases, that may be appropriate. So I think I would say, well, each area has to figure that out. It's not a trivial problem. But when we talk more broadly about the retirement of capacity, it makes me think back to a meeting I went to that DOE convened as they started this new enterprise, the Grid Modernization Lab Consortium that I mentioned, that includes grid architecture and other things. And in the presentation that I saw on the first day, it was a two-day meeting in California last June, the presenter started out with this headline on the slide that said, a 21st century economy needs a 21st century grid. And I was thinking about that for quite a while. It, it was troubling me because I was wondering, what is a 21st century economy? <laughs> if we think, I mean, so what are the drivers of demand? And right. it's, to your question, it's how much capacity do we need? Right. And generally, when we ask that question, we're assuming that we have to produce as much energy as we do today. Right. Right. Just like when we talk about getting more electric vehicles on the road or moving to electrifying transportation, we're assuming we're moving the same amount of stuff and the same amount of people, the same number of miles, and we're just doing it with cleaner things. But how about using a whole lot less? How about moving stuff a whole lot less? How about moving people a whole lot less? And maybe we don't need to replace 100% of the capacity anymore. And I think that that big picture deserves some serious consideration. And so I took this point of the economy being the driver of the grid to say, well, if that's true, what is the economy going to look like? And if we talk about sustainability, if we talk about stopping the toxification of the environment and the emission of greenhouse gases and all of those things, then which of our economic practices that we take for granted today may need to dramatically change because they're not sustainable. We catch fish on the west coast of California. We ship it to China for processing. China ships it back here for consuming. So the same fish is crossing the ocean twice. Is that a sustainable use of energy? Now, granted, that's not electricity, but it still is part of why are we using energy? What's it for? And we buy things at most of the places where we go to stores and buy things, and it comes in a whole bunch of packaging that we throw away. We use one time, we're filling up garbage dump. Can we keep doing an economy that relies that much on throwaway packaging? Automating processes, driverless cars. So there's a famous story of Walter Ruther, who was the president of the United Auto Workers back in the 1950s and 60s, and he goes on a tour of a new robotic assembly plant in Detroit. And the plant manager says, well, tell me, Mr. Ruther, how are you going to get these robots to pay your union dues? And Ruther says to him, well, tell me, Mr. So-and-so, how are you going to get these robots to buy your cars? <laughs> so what happens to an economy where the drivers of vehicles, which is a big employer of men, don't need drivers anymore. Yeah. So I think we need to think about a sustainable economy and then electricity in the context of that economy, which could be very different from the electricity system we have today. Another aspect of that that goes back to what I was saying about resources and loads collapsing so that each endpoint now is a sometimes a resource, sometimes a load. Well, you go to any premises, 
whether it's a house or a commercial building or a farm or a factory or anything that is attached to the grid and uses kilowatt hours. And now let's look at it as why does this thing need energy? What does it use it for? Lights and heat and running machinery and whatever, whole list of stuff. And now there's some business that comes in and says, okay, let me look at your energy needs. Let's see, we can do some energy efficiency upgrades, put solar panels on the roof, put vehicle charging and electronic control systems, thermal chilling, and maybe 75% of your energy needs are met with on-site facilities and load management. 25% is kilowatt hours off the grid. Mm -hmm. So now the grid is not the primary source of energy more. It's the residual source of energy where most of the energy needs are met locally at the premises. So how does that drive the 21st century grid? in terms of the capacity requirements. It could be dramatically less, and maybe it needs to be dramatically less. It certainly seems plausible to me that over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, we can transition more to these more self-reliant power systems at the edge of the grid and less on big central station generation. So right. it's really a question of managing that transition rather than fear of, of massive shortages, in my view. Right. The simple fact is that electricity demand has been flat or falling in the United States for almost a decade now. Yeah. I definitely take your point. I guess what I'm calling for is some careful thinking about it and some careful planning. And let's make sure that we're not just trusting that the market is going to sort everything out and that we're keeping an eye on capacity, I guess. Absolutely. Anything that's capital T, capital M, the market, is we know someone's ideal about something that isn't quite the reality. <laughs> so the market isn't this magical thing that solves all the problems. Right, right. Finally, I wanted to ask you about a, a subject that I've studied quite a bit, and that's how you approach the cost and the benefits of energy transition. In a previous gig, I had worked on a cost-benefit methodology that was designed to do things like incorporate the social cost of carbon into the state spending decisions. And there's a lot of other things that you can put in there, of course, like what's the, what's the cost of ecosystem services or what's the value of resilience? And it seems like we're still a long way from really having a robust kind of cost-benefit methodology that can really guide us as we're figuring out how to do energy transition. So what do you think about that? I mean, are we correctly evaluating the costs and benefits of transition anywhere near it? I mean, right now people say, oh, well, all this wind and solar stuff is so expensive, we can't afford transition, but that's not really a whole system view of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think cost-benefit analysis has probably been misused as much as it's been used, and energy <laughs> has been very inexpensive, and largely due to the fact that most of the ecosystem impacts have been ignored. So... I don't have definitive answers about methodology, but I think we need to look at the cost of not doing energy transition, at least conceptually, and think about what does it cost us if we don't change the way we do energy. And I'm thinking in terms of all of the ecosystem impacts that we're seeing just getting a lot worse. We're still spewing methane out of the Arctic regions. We still have this giant continent of plastic floating in the Pacific Ocean that's creating toxicity, yeah. et cetera. I mean, there's a whole list of things that we can go down. But the point is, we really absolutely need to change it. And I think there are some things that we haven't even figured out how to put a monetary value on. 
carbon, there's been some good efforts along that line. But resilience, I don't think we have any sense of what is the price of resilience. And when I think of small decentralized systems that can island and so a big storm comes through or a fire takes out a line, right. sure, that's damaging in the local area, but it's not propagating over a huge area because we have these decentralized resilient systems. I don't think we've put any kind of a real price tag or, or, or benefit value on those things yet. And those are the things that I think we need to think about because... To me, resilience is a local capability. Right. It's the ability of a community here where people live, where they're doing stuff, that they have the ingredients that are relatively sustaining their quality of life. And it's not just that they have electricity turning on their lights, but it's pumping their water. It's pumping their sewage. You know, it's providing their telecommunications. So it's really looking at a local area, say a municipality now as a whole system where all of these services are essential for the quality of life and electricity powers all of them. So the ability to not be vulnerable to something that takes out a piece of the grid, I think, is going to be hugely more valuable in the future. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a question like, you know, what's the cost of implementing REV in New York, right? Or what should New York be spending uh, within New York ISO territory, for example, to beef up the grid or to create microgrids or to support all this kind of stuff? When we look at those costs, we're not comparing them to what's the benefit of the next Superstorm Sandy being half as yeah. damaging, right? Yeah. Or being able to keep half as much infrastructure running. Yeah, or to be able to get it back on in half a day instead of two weeks right. in some of the areas, you know, those not kinds of things. Not having people freezing in the dark. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, so it's a much bigger societal cost-benefit question, but just recognize that the benefits are things that we may not fully realize yet because yeah. conditions are in many ways getting worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, that should wrap it up for today. Great. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate having the time to chat with you. I always enjoy it. And, oh, likewise. Uh, thank Lorenzo. you for the it's invitation. Yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Enrollment for the next eLab Accelerator, a boot camp for electricity innovation, is open through January 13, 2017. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.